Welcome to St. Dee's, welcome to The Five, great to see you. Uh, I'm Pat, um, the Associate Vicar. Um, and happy Valentine's Day. Yeah? Maybe that's why I'm a bit thin on the ground. There's some people out there on the dates, in the restaurants, round and about. I don't know. Uh, but I, have you had a good day? Everyone had a good day? Lots of cards for people? Yes, good. None for me. Uh, chocolates? Anyone been eating chocolate today? I've had a chocolate. Sweet. You chat, you're comparing notes about cards. Sweet older lady this morning came up to me and gave me a, a heart-shaped chocolate. A faithful member of our congregation. Full marks to her. Anyway, um, listen, if you've missed out on anything today on Valentine's Day, hopefully you've received um, our free gift, which is for you at the back of church, which was made by Charlotte Crease. One of our newest members. Give us a wave, Charlotte. Where are you? Uh, you know, the little plastic bag, I mean, the, what's it? The see-through bag, beautifully wrapped with three sweets. And so, so kind. Thank you, Charlotte. So that's a little gift um, to you. So no one's going home empty-handed tonight. But it's, it's quite amazing that we're looking, uh, we're not looking at Valentine's Day, <laughs> that we are looking at what we're looking at tonight, and it is Valentine's Day. Um, because did you know... Do you know where Valentine's Day stems from? And let me tell you. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Joe. You've, you've been here before. Uh, Valentine's Day stems from, it's actually a Christian feast in memory of uh, a saint, a guy called Valentinus, who lived in the fourth century, I believe, Tim. I looked at him. <laughs> Uh, and he actually got martyred. He got put to death for his faith uh, because, well, he was just being Christian and they sort of hated us back then. Uh, so he was another guy who got martyred for his faith. He used to marry Christians, help uh, Christians get married because uh, in the Roman Empire at that point, it was seemingly quite hard. So he got associated with sort of love and marriage. Um, and this day got set apart sort of in his honor. And look what we've done with it. Uh, anyway... Um, the point is, he laid down his life for the faith. He made the greatest sacrifice it's possible to make. And tonight, we're going to be looking at our next letter in our um, series in Revelation. And we're looking at these seven letters from Jesus to the churches um, in Asia Minor. And they're letters to specific churches, but they're also letters to the church throughout time. They're letters to us today and it's appropriate that we're looking at one of these letters on Valentine's Day itself because I guess Valentine's Day is also a day when you might write a love letter uh, to someone else, someone you love. And these letters, there's probably no better description of them than that they are Jesus' love letters to his bride, the church. Sometimes it's quite tough love, as we'll see later tonight. But they are love letters nonetheless. And that's what we're looking at tonight. So do you want to grab a Bible? We're back in Revelation. We're on page 1167. Bible's on the white tables near the pillars. Hand them out to a neighbor if you grab a, a few. You might be able to get it on the screen. I don't know. But no stress if not. 1167. We're look, looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum. It begins at verse 12 in chapter 2. 
page 1167. I'm just going to pray and then let's read. So Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. We pray that you come and move among us tonight. Come and wield it, Lord, and in your loving way, do heart surgery. And we thank you for these letters, these letters we've been looking at, which are your love letters to your church, your bride, your people. Just as relevant today as the first day they were written. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you come and speak to us. Open our minds, open our hearts. Move us to follow you more closely. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I was here um, Wednesday evening, uh, just been, and we had our second night of Alpha, which has kicked off a new course, not too late to join, by the way. Uh, and in fact, I thought I spotted a new joiner who'd come in. Um, and he was chatting to Emma, who was welcoming people at the back. We've got a sort of, well, you know, getting up, you know, with the times. We had a welcomer uh, with a silver high top table. She was chatting, so I excitedly went over to greet her and sort of bring her in, only to discover she was here looking for some lost property from um, the Cayley that she'd been at before. And, but she was inquisitive, and she wondered, like, what's going on in here? And uh, Emma had been telling her, oh, it's Alpha, telling her a bit, and she said, Pat, I can tell you more. So I excitedly began sort of telling her. And she's like, it's a very different vibe to, uh, you know, the reeling that I was doing last week. I was like, well, you're very welcome to join. And she was like, I could see she was on me, she was on the back foot. You know, when you used to read the body language and sometimes you just got to know how to read it and just when to let it go, not lean, because then they just turn and they run. Uh, and she was almost doing that. But she was, she was curious. Um, but she said this thing. She said, like, oh, is it this place? Am I going to be indoctrinated? And I'm sure, yeah, exactly, I'm sure we've all had that before, potentially, that response. People thinking, oh, you're part of that church, it's just too much, it's quite full on, it's happy clappy, it's culty, it's going to indoctrinate me. And our response is like to be like, no, no, my response is like, no, no, not at all, come and join, check it out, give it a go, I want to enjoy, no. And she left, and it just got me thinking. And obviously we don't indoctrinate, because that suggests we do things against people's will. But yes, we want to educate. And there is plenty to educate people about. And it made me think, sometimes I think we're a bit shy about saying what it is that we need to open people's eyes to. Because does she, bless her, need indoctrination? Well, if she doesn't know Jesus Christ, if she doesn't have a biblical worldview, then yes, absolutely. I mean, if, someone, if you meet someone who doesn't have a basic understanding of maths, doesn't know that two plus two equals four, they think it equals five, it's not loving, is it? To let them go through life thinking it equals five. There are far worse beliefs and ignorance than that in the world. And as we come to look at this letter, I love the fact that we're in Revelation because what it's doing is it's opening our eyes to the worldview that God wants us to have. 
a worldview that we need to learn, that we need to be indoctrinated into, that we need to come to an understanding of if we're to live our lives as Christians and if we're to remain faithful, which Jesus calls us to be in 21st century London. Because our faith, I don't know if it's hit you recently, but it's been hitting me a lot over the last few months, our faith is kind of crazy compared to what they believe out there in the world. Because I don't know whether you've noticed, but they don't put sort of Christian headlines or biblical worldviews on the front of the national, national newspapers most of the time or on the news. I mean, they tend to deal in concrete events, you know, stocks, shares, political events, sports results, back pages, you know, stuff you can see, touch, measure. But this book... It deals with an invisible kingdom, stuff we can't see, but that is actually the reality behind reality behind all that is. And it speaks of a Lord we looked at a few weeks ago. It speaks of a Lord who created the entire universe, whose world that it, this is, who came in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, who died, who rose again, and is going to come back one day and judge the whole world and bring about his kingdom. Forever. This is the worldview that gets held out in this book. This is the truth we live by as Christians. But you won't come across it out there. You won't stumble upon it in the news. It's found in here. It's found in the word of God, which is why we need to keep ourselves in it. I mean, I want to look at a few things tonight. I want to look at... Um, how Jesus speaks to his bride, the church, the kind of words he gives us. We're going to see tonight that he gives words of commendation. But not just that. He gives words of confrontation as well. And then finally he gives words of consolation. So the first section, let's just look at that. If you've got it, like verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. It's quite a strong start uh, from Jesus. We'll come back to that in a moment. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. I mean, right there, you've just got a worldview that is at odds with everything that's being taught out there, outside these four walls, outside any church or biblical worldview. It's talking about Satan. It's talking about this person, the devil that Christians believe is real. And it's saying he has a throne. I mean, we live in the 21st century. We live in a scientific age. The reason I'm going on about this is because we've got to grasp how crazy this is in, in the minds of those out there if we're to hold on to living faithfully in it and confidently because this is the word of God. And this tells us what is true, what is real. And it tells us that Satan is real. You know, easy mistake to make about Satan is thinking that he's locked up in hell, that that's his domain. Go to hell, people say, with the devil and his demons. He's not in hell. That's not the Bible's view. The Bible teaches that now is his era. Jesus taught 
that he is the prince of this world. 2 Corinthians says that he is the God of this age. He is alive, he is well, he is at work opposing the things of God, opposing the kingdom of God, coming against the church of Christ, coming against us. He is alive. And this letter, Jesus is saying, tells us that he is alive and he has a throne, or perhaps he has many thrones. We can't see him, see other thrones, see the queen. But have you ever seen Satan on his throne? Yet Jesus, who is king, he is Lord, his eyes are like fire, he is glorious. But we can't see him. He tells us that Satan is alive, that he reigns in this world, and he has a throne, and his throne is in this very city of Pergamum. Now, Pergamum was an extraordinary place back in that time. You know, we've looked at the, uh, Jesus' letter to Ephesus, uh, to Smyrna. It was about 100 miles north of Ephesus. It's about 50 miles away from Smyrna. So these letters were written at the time, and uh, some scholars' understanding is that the letters would be sort of run around like on a postal route around all these different cities. So sort of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and then the others, uh, which we'll come to. So it was on this sort of route, and they'd all be read. And it was in the northwest, and it was the capital at the time of the Roman Empire in Asia Minor. It was a big deal. It was actually a place where they invented paper, parchment, believe it or not, just for interest's sake. And it had an extraordinary library for the time. I mean, it had a library that was 200,000 books or scrolls strong. Now remember, they didn't have a printing press, so each one of those books... Scrolls was, was handwritten, and Antony uh, of the Roman Empire actually gave the entire library, sort of nicked it, and gave it as a present to Cleopatra. Remember Antony and Cleopatra? I guess, I don't know, maybe it's a Valentine's Day gift. Here you go, Cleopatra, uh, 200,000 strong library. I mean, some of you guys, you know, hopefully not getting elbowed by your girlfriend saying, you never give me a library. <laughs> All in good time, guys. I don't know. Maybe you've got a book on the way. <laughs> anyway, it, it was a significant place. But Jesus describes it as the place where Satan has his throne. Why did Satan have his throne there? Well, it's because so much stuff was going on in his honor. I mean, in, in Pergamum alone, there were Babylonian cults that had sort of come out the woodwork, having been driven out of, of Babylon. They had come and they'd set up their headquarters in Pergamum. There was a temple to Zeus just outside the city center on the highest point. A massive 40-foot high statue, 100-foot wide altar temple to the god Zeus. There was a temple to the god Asclepios. Asclepios was believed to be the god of medicine, the god of health. And, and as you can imagine back in those days... Sort of stuff to do with how there was a lot of suspicion weaved into it. So a lot of sensing, well, the gods will heal you. So his temple was full of snakes and you'd go and sleep there, harmless snakes. If a snake touched you whilst you slept at night, they believed that brought you healing. This was the god Asclepius. They worshipped that god there. There was also the very first temple built to uh, bring about worship for the emperor, the Roman emperor of the day. 
And every year, every Roman citizen would be required to go into these temples wherever they were, take a pinch of uh, incense and burn it on the altar declaring Caesar is God. You can imagine the kind of trouble that caused Christians. More of that in a moment. Why was Satan's throne there? It's because he received so much worship there. This was his stronghold. This is where his throne was. And yet, Jesus says, I know where you live. You know, that word live, there's lots of words for live in the New Testament. Some of it can be sort of more passing through your pilgrims. Just briefly staying. This word speaks of putting down roots of truly staying put, not going anywhere, taking a stand. And Jesus said, I know where you live, in the very stronghold of Satan, where he has his throne. And he goes on to commend them. This is how many of these letters start. You know, they have commendation and then they have quite a big but. And we're going to see the but in a moment and then some promises. And so the encouraging stuff is up front. The, the words of commendation. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet despite this, Jesus says, you remain true to my name. What's the greatest gift we could give Jesus today on Valentine's Day? What would show him how much we loved him? What does he ask of us? What's his love language? It's faithfulness. It's faithfulness. It's staying true to him. No matter what the cost, no matter what we face, it blesses him. And Jesus says, despite, despite the throne of Satan being there, wherever it's based, despite that, you remain true to my name. He loves that. He honors that. He calls that out of us today in 21st century London where I imagine Satan has many thrones. You know, I imagine, you know, he takes a private jet from one place to the next and he's got another. Why wouldn't he have another throne? He's the ruler of this age. Do you think he doesn't have a throne in London? Somewhere? Peckham? I don't know. <laughs> Not Parsons Green. No, no, no. He calls us to remain faithful. He wants to commend them. He wants to commend us. He says, you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith. The name of Jesus is the name that's the most divisive in all of human history. And yet it is the only name by which people can be saved. They remain true to his name. They remain true to the faith. There are certain things in our faith that we just simply have to hold on to. That as Christians, we cannot back away from. So I'm excited about Tuesday night when we're going to look at what is the gospel? We're going to look at the fundamentals of like, what do you have to accept? What do you need to know in order to hold out life and the gospel to other people? To say, this is what you need to believe because there is stuff we need to believe. There is stuff in the faith we need to not renounce. And Jesus says here, you did not renounce your faith, not even in the days of Antipas. Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city. You ever heard of Antipas before? I don't think I had. Well, since the last time I read this passage, 
The world doesn't write biographies on Antipas. He won't go down in sort of secular history as a great hero, a great man, and yet here he is recorded in Scripture for all time, for every generation in the Word of God, known by name by Jesus himself. Why? Because he was faithful. He was faithful. He held out. He was a witness to Jesus. What does this mean? It simply means that he went around living as a Christian. And if people asked him, what do you believe? He told them, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's the son of God. I believe through him you can know eternal life and the blessing of God is your father. He was a witness. He spoke of Jesus. And it cost him his life. Now tradition holds that they shaped this bronze ox and hollowed it out and they put him inside this ox and they lit a fire under this bronze bull and they roasted him alive. I mean, can you imagine? Antipas, my faithful witness, Jesus says. You can almost hear the love he has in his heart for Antipas, this man who paid the price for the name of Jesus. What about you? What about me? How far would we be willing to go if several years down the line they were suddenly carving out bronze oxes and bulls all over London? You saw one with your name on it, Pat Allison. <laughs> really? Um, I'll just go over here. This is it. And Jesus commends that faithfulness, that kind of sacrifice. And that's the challenge for us tonight. The challenge we're going to see is, are we prepared to be those kind of Christians, Antipas type of Christians, bronze bull Christians? Or are we sort of happy to be half and half, lukewarm, you know, good enough Christians? You ever get that from friends who just think, they can understand you having a faith, but they think you're just a little OTT. You know, you're going too far with the faith. Don't be weird, Pat, about this. You know, don't get too carried away. If this is real, it's worth getting more carried away than we can imagine. Amen? Antipas went all the way. Jesus saw this. He commended them. And he commended him because this was also a church that suffered, that struggled with compromise. These are the words of confrontation which we see in verse 14. Just follow with me. Nevertheless, you see the classic, oh gosh. Jesus encourages, commends, then he confronts. And by the way, we're very good as Christians, aren't we? Like listening to the, the commending voice of God and giving one another sort of the commending, encouraging Words from scripture, from God. How about the confrontational words? How about the tough stuff? How about the warnings? Scripture is full of warnings. Why? Because there are real dangers. And God loves us too much not to warn us. So here he, here he goes. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin. 
so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. What? Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Balaam, Balak, Nicolaitans, what is going on? Jesus comes to confront them. And he does it saying, there are some among you. See, it's interesting to note that it's not that the whole church has committed to an erroneous doctrine, has gone off off beam. You know, the church as a whole were doing fine. They were on trend. They were faithful. And yet Jesus says it's some of you. And that's a warning to the church in general that it doesn't need all of us to be going the wrong way. It even just needs some of us to affect the whole lot and to attract Jesus' attention and Jesus' warning. Some of you, he says, hold to the teaching of Balaam. Who was Balaam? Well, Balaam was basically an Old Testament guy who, when Israel were looking to take over the promised land with Joshua, they're fighting lots of battles. You remember that? We looked at some of that recently, weekend away type stuff. Um, one of the kings, uh, the Moabites, Balak, saw how numerous the Israelites were, and he started, yeah, he got a bit scared, um, and he got nervous. He was like, what, you know, I need some supernatural help here. And Balaam was a prophet of God. He, was, he knew God, and yet he sort of sold out and would offer his services. He was a prophet for hire because he had greed in his heart. He wanted money. So Balak went to him and said, look, I, I want you to come. I'm going to pay you, give you whatever you want. Uh, I just want you to come and curse the Israelites. So he gets him in and Balaam goes up high and he's going to go for it. But he seeks the Lord and says, Lord, what shall I say? And the Lord says, bless them. So he blesses them. And Balak's like, well, that didn't, what the heck? I paid you. You know, let's try again. They go to a different mountaintop, you know, Another sacrifice seeks the Lord. The Lord says, bless them again. He blesses them. This happens three times. Instead of cursing, Balaam blesses them. Balak's furious. But tradition holds that Balaam gives him a word of advice. He says, okay, I may not be able to curse them, but you can corrupt them. Go. Be friendly with them. Mix with them. Be good neighbors. Live alongside them. Get to know them. You know, Valentine's Day. Send some of your pretty ladies amongst them. You know, maybe mingle, maybe mix. Have a glass of rosé, you know, see what happens. That was his advice. Long story short, Israel starts mixing, mingling, marrying with the Moabites and stumbling into those corrupt, idolatrous practices such as worshipping idols, eating food, sacrifice to them, doing what goes along with that, which is general debauchery, orgies, sexual immorality, stuff the Lord hates. And this was the sin that the church had fallen into. They'd basically got loose around the area of sexual ethics. And this too is what the Nicolaitans led to. It says in verse 15, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We don't know a huge amount about the Nicolaitans, other than people seem to think 
that they got to a place of somehow abusing the, the understanding of grace. That we've got God's grace, therefore we can live as we like, and it's fine, it doesn't matter. God forgives. So they stumbled into very loose, promiscuous living, into sexual uh, promiscuity. Just the same as the sin of Balaam. And this is the area, this is the sort of sin that the church has just got mixed up in and has begun. You can just imagine it, sort of the whisperings begin like, does it really say kind of sex before marriage in the Bible? I don't know. I mean, let's, everything loosens. Stuff starts getting practiced. Suddenly, it's not just, is it all right? Suddenly, no, it's fine. It's more confidently put forward. Suddenly, it's a doctrine. It's being taught by some in the church and confidently practiced. And Jesus here is saying, I don't like it. I don't like it. And he says in verse 16, repent. I know, I appreciate this can be a sensitive area. We're a church full of well, we're not all married, so this is relevant. And it's relevant because out there in the world, there is a whole menu of options available for this area, for sexual ethics, for sexual practice. And you might be getting practice from friends, housemates, colleagues, family. I mean, I, I'm not from a Christian family. I was having one, and it's hard, you know. It's having one day where I was having a tough day. Obviously, I was looking a bit grumpy going about the house. And I remember walking through the kitchen and my mum, lovingly, my mum reached out with, I guess, all, all that she could think to encourage me, to sort of comfort, try and breathe life into me. And she was like, her advice, her wisdom is like, oh, darling, just go and have some sex. <laughs> I get, and the thing is, I don't know, I, I don't hold it against her because I, that's their worldview, isn't it? They don't see the invisible Lord whose eyes are like fire, who sits on the throne. They don't know that we're in a spiritual battle with Satan who's very real, who comes against us, who also has many thrones. I don't hold it against my mum, but that's what's on offer. That's what the world goes after. They will think you're crazy if you commit to a life of purity, to a life of holiness. But that is exactly what Jesus calls us to that is exactly the life he calls us to live. Yeah, I'm not saying this just, I'm not bigging myself. You know, I'm 37 years of age and I'm still a virgin. I just want to put that out there to encourage you, I guess. Because the world would say, oh my gosh, you're crazy and you're very odd. And some of those things are true, uh, but not because of that. With the biblical worldview. Not because of that choice, that decision. Jesus was the most fully alive human being who's ever lived. Died, what, at the age of 34? He, he never had sex. He honored his father. He recognized that God's blessing is only on sex when it is between a man and a woman in the covenant relationship of marriage. And if you're here tonight, if you're here tonight and you're practicing anything 
other, anything different, thinking that God's blessing is with you, then my friend, the word from the scriptures tonight is, it's not. God's blessing rests on covenant and covenant alone. And any other lifestyle will lead to the judgment of God upon us and upon you.